Let's pray together. Father, as always, I stand in huge need of your help to be faithful to your word. And so I ask that you would protect me from error and uh, guard our hearts from sin and pride and grant that your Holy Spirit would reign mightily in this room and that our hearts would be made docile to your truth. I pray that Jesus would be exalted and that our defects and deficiencies of doubt and fear would be overcome and that the impulse to lead lives of radical, risk-taking love for the sake of the lost and the suffering would be intensified. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to relieve you of any pressure to take notes, uh, we'll try to put this up online by tomorrow morning so you can just have the whole thing and you can just relax and as they say on the airplane, sit back and uh, enjoy the flight. For about 10 years now, I have returned to the doctrine of justification more often than to any other doctrine. And there are five reasons for why this has held so much of my time and attention in these Ten years. Let me give you five reasons, and the fifth one is the one that will provide the structure for the rest of the message. First four will go by pretty quick. Number one, for eight of those ten years, I was preaching through the book of Romans, and justification is central to the book of Romans, and therefore it was inescapable. Second, I am surrounded at Bethlehem by thoughtful, uh, widely read apprentices who ask hard questions, and I do not have the luxury of indefinite equivocation. Third, During those ten years, as you know, the doctrine has become increasingly embattled, although that's a relative term, increasingly, because I was reading Owen on the plane coming out here, and it's not any more embattled now than it was 350 years ago. So increasingly, in in my perception of this generation, it seems to me that it has become increasingly embattled. For example... The lines between evangelical faith and the Roman Catholic understanding have become profoundly blurred. My first preparation and pass on this message was to develop three pages to to give an account of that, and I'll just put that all aside. You know where that's coming from. Number two, the doctrine of imputation itself, the imputation of Christ's obedience, has been just simply denied. It's just not there in the Bible, and many in this society believe that. Number three, the new perspective on Paul, especially N.T. Wright, has, as they say, redrawn the map of New Testament theology in such a way 
that confusion, confusion is very widespread as to just how, well, first of all, what it is, what justification is, and then how it relates to the gospel and how it relates to conversion and how it relates to judgment is just a haze for many young pastors and scholars. For others have merged faith and its fruits so that the term by faith alone has ceased to provide a foundation for holiness and is now virtually identical with holiness, which I think is the ultimate death knell knell of, of holiness. And number five, some have so changed the ordinary meaning of the word righteousness that in the act of justification, it no longer refers to anyone's right attitude or right action. It only refers to a courtroom verdict of acquittal without reference to anybody's action or attitude. In other words, year after year, as I have been trying to win pagan people in Minneapolis to Jesus and send missionaries and help my people get the full assurance of faith, I have hit again and again and again these new permutations of the denial of what I see in the New Testament. So that's the third reason for going back to it again and again. It's embattled. And the fourth reason is that I relate to this doctrine, this truth, this reality with passions not unlike John Bunyan's. Christ's perfect faith and obedience counts as mine in him so that his perfection is reckoned to be mine that is infinitely precious to me. Bunyan really struggled with the issue of a tormented doubt about his own standing with God. And he wrote this. One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness. For that was just there in front of Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous better, my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs, indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. 
That's what I preach toward because it totally changes people's lives. If it doesn't, it hasn't happened. As you heard this morning or this afternoon from Dr. Moo. In other words, this, this doctrine, more than any others in recent years, has held my attention because huge, eternal things are at stake for my soul, the souls of my people, the people for whom I will have to give an account before Christ in maybe a decade or an hour. Now, I'm aware that there are academic folks, I hope not many in this room, who would say that that last three minutes of confession totally unfits me to be a reliable exegete. This fellow has so much personal and pastoral allegiance to what he believes justification to be, and he feels such a great need for it and has so much enjoyment in it that there's no way he can be objective when he comes to the biblical text or be open to finding that his view is mistaken. Well, that may be true. There is another way to look at it, however, that a passion for a particular revealed truth functions totally differently from being a blinding one. I say this because of John 7.17, what Jesus said there. He said, If anyone wills, desires, wants, if anyone desires, wants God's will, he'll know. That's backward. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, Jesus taught that in some matters at least, right willing precedes right knowing. Jesus is saying, if you want the will of God, you'll have a disposition of heart to recognize it when you see it in the Word. He does not say, if you don't want the truth God is revealing, if you have no passion for this truth, and therefore have a measure of distance and dis, dis, um, what, what am I hanging out? disengagement and objectivity, then in your vaunted academic neutrality, you will really see clearly what's there. That's not what he says. That's the opposite of what he says. So, he's saying, there are in some matters, prior neutrality does not serve the truth. It serves death. Now, of course, that does not mean that my Bunyan-like desperation for this truth certifies my exegetical work. 
course it doesn't. What it does is give me a sense of balance and equilibrium in a chaotic world with incredible claims of openness and readiness to change that I now know from Jesus to sometimes be blinding openness, not illuminating openness. None of that, I don't think, traps us in some vicious hermeneutical circle. Got to know to like, got to like to know, hopeless. Because the Word of God is powerful and is able to shatter preconceived errors even among those most committed to their mistakes. And if that happens to be me, I do pray for mercy. So, eight years of preaching Romans, continual querying from apprentices, having to deal with ever new permutations of denial, believing that this doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness is precious beyond measure, have caused me to return to it again and again and again. Which brings me now to the last impulse that has brought me to it and which will form the structure of the rest of the the talk. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, and if you have a Bible, I would like you to go to it with me. In Philippians chapter 1, Greek text or English, be fine. Any version, suitable. Philippians, we're going to build everything else in this message off of Philippians, drawing in some other text, but mainly lingering here in three texts. When I came to Bethlehem 28 years ago, I took as my initial text chapter 1, verse 20, which has been the charter of my longings. I would like to say the charter of my life. That feels presumptuous. My wife knows me well, and I know me pretty good, and it feels presumptuous to say it, so I... I'll just say it's the charter of my passions. It's the charter of my longing. And isn't it interesting? That's the way the apostle also talks. So verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope. Wouldn't go further. That Christ might be ESV honored. Megalunthesitae. Translated in Mary's Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's the word. It is my eager expectation and hope that Christ might be magnified in my body. Now, as always, whether by life, preaching, teaching, counseling, teaching students or preaching to a people, going to ETS, whatever, whether I live or whether I die. So that's just the charter. And there's the impulse. I believe that the denial of 
the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Christ to me by faith alone through union with him dishonors Christ diminishes his work. Hence the title of this talk. We are summoned as teachers, preachers, to magnify the magnificence of the work of Christ. Not like a microscope magnifies, but like a telescope magnifies. A microscope magnifies by making little things look bigger than they are. And a telescope magnifies by making things that look little to the world, like twinkle, twinkle, little star, look like the magnificent quasars that they are. Put your eye to this life and see Him. Put your eye to this death. And see the majesty of Christ. Put your eye to this doctrine as it's unfolded in this systematic theology class. And behold, Christ, magnificent above all things. And an achievement in his life and death that is beyond measure. When Paul describes the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he uses these words. It is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Or in verse 6, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he's willing to say that the gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's about His glory, it's about His majesty, it's about His greatness. And therefore, jealousy for the gospel is jealousy for the fullness of the glory. So my main concern, my biggest impulse, is that diminishing the achievement of Christ robs Him of a part of His glory. Which is what I think the denial of the imputation of of the righteousness of Christ does. So, for ten years, again and again and again, as I have read and reread the permutations, and they get ever more complicated, of how this doctrine is being undone, my jealousy for him rises So what I'd like to do under this now fifth impulse is to show you three diminishings of Christ and his work in regard to justification. Three ways that he and his work are being diminished. One, I'll just tell you what they are and then we'll take them one at a time. One is... His achievement is simply being denied. It doesn't exist. Two, you'll feel I'm a pastor. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't read a lot. I have to limit my reading really narrow, and because I've got, I was up 
we had an elder meeting last night till almost midnight. And so I'm just trying to figure out mainly how to do church and teach the truth. And So this one comes right out of my life experience. The deficiencies and the defects of the human soul, as I know them here and see them there, were meant to be remedied by the achievement of Christ. And if part of the achievement of Christ is eliminated, certain defects and remedies languish, undealt with. People don't know why. We'll come back to that one. And third, and this one relates most closely probably to the theme of this ETS annual gathering and to the plenary session from earlier today. When the glory of Christ diminishes and when the human soul, not even knowing why, languishes the power to lay down your life for suffering people, especially their eternal suffering, is severed. It may take several generations. Let's take those one at a time. Number one, the fullness of the glory of Christ in the gospel is diminished because one of the great achievements of Christ is being simply denied. He didn't do this. It isn't in the Bible. He did not exert his perfect faith and live his perfect obedience and die his perfect death with a view to accomplishing a righteousness that would be counted as mine through faith alone by union with him. He didn't do that. That's not part of what he achieved. As Paul now in Philippians moves forward, having said, my passion is that Christ be magnified, One of the ways he magnifies Christ in chapter 2 is by describing his life in a most remarkable way. Verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2 in Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, by becoming obedient, by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So Paul magnifies the glory of, of Jesus By treating it, his life, as one magnificent obedience. It's a most amazing way of describing Jesus. I mean, if you wanted to just narrate from eternity to resurrection, how would you say it? Here's the way he 
read verse 8 again. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a very short summary of a magnificent life. Birth as a human, humble obedience, climaxing in death, resurrection. That's amazing. It's as though Paul's, <clears throat> in Paul's mind, the life of Christ from birth to death was one great, complete, humble obedience. Which, for me, goes a long way to account for Romans 5, 18 and 19. Which says, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one toss, one righteousness, one act of righteousness, leads to the justification of life for all men. For, as by one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be appointed righteous. I think it's a diminishing to Christ's achievement to say that the obedience in verse 18 refers only to his death. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on his cross, on the cross. His death was the climax of a life of obedience, its highest, most glorious expression. But Christ had set his face to die from day one, and every step he took was obedience unto death. Every step he took, obedience unto death. That's where he was heading, and that's what every step meant, even death. On a cross. So when Paul says in verse 19 of Romans 5, by one man's obedience, many are appointed righteous, and calls that obedience in verse 18 one great dikaioma, I see no reason to construe it any other way than the obedience he has celebrated in Philippians 2 8. And the function of that obedience was not merely to fit him to die well as a sacrifice. It was so that he might become both our substitute punishment and our substitute perfection and righteousness. Because, it says, by the one man's obedience, the many will be appointed righteous. He keeps going to celebrate this magnificent Christ on into chapter 3 now. And you can imagine where we're going. This is so important. He's going to exalt over Christ his righteousness here, I believe. So he lists his former achievements as a Pharisee in verses 5 at the end, following. As to the law, chapter 3, verse 5b, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, 
in the law, blameless. Now, it's really important here to see how he uses the word righteousness in verse 6. Notice the parallel, according to righteousness and according to zeal. Let that inform how you read both. According to zeal, a persecutor. According to righteousness, blameless. So the natural meaning is his zeal is expressed in persecuting Christians and his righteousness is expressed in blameless behavior. I don't think that's hard. So the natural meaning is that righteousness here is normal, usual meaning, good behavior, according to a standard, a right standard, measuring up, blameless. You can, by this kind of righteousness, you can be blameless or not blameless. That's what this righteousness is. It's, it's behavior with a certain attitude and motive inside of it. Then he says in verses 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had, referring back to this righteousness, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Back at his chief impulse in life now. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So he counts righteousness in the law, which he regarded as blameless, as garbage. Then, verse 9, the key verse, and be found in him. Be found in him, not in law or in me. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Parenthesis. If that means the faith fullness of Christ, if that's what pistu, Christu, whatever the phrase is, means here, so be it. It helps my case, big time. I don't think that's what it means. It would be perfect for my cause if that's what it meant. If it would relate back to chapter 2 in a most remarkable way and warrant the righteousness of Christ as what we are trusting him for. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means faith in Christ. Start over. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, it seems plain then that the righteousness Paul exalts in is not his own. That is, 
It's a righteousness that he's receiving by faith. And more specifically, it's a righteousness that he says he he has in Christ. That's the locus of the righteousness that he has because he's trusting for it. Now, we can say some things about this righteousness, and so let's bore in a little further about this righteousness in chapter 3, verse 9. One of the things we can say, I think with a good deal of confidence, is that the righteousness that he has in Christ is not a verdict. It's not what the noun means. It's not a verdict. It's not an, an acquittal. Righteousness in verse 6 just doesn't mean that. And this is the parallel word. To switch meanings with the flow of thought going like it is just doesn't work. According to righteousness under the law, blameless. I don't want that righteousness. I need another. It'd be a category confusion and shift here if you switched around and began to take righteousness as verdict. And, and not only that, it just doesn't make sense to say not having a verdict of my own. Of course you want a verdict of your own. Not guilty. That's my verdict. It doesn't, that's, you wouldn't say not mine if the issue there were verdict. You say not mine because mine won't measure up. He's going to say then, verse 12, about his Christian obedience as well. Come back to that in a moment. So, I don't think it means verdict or acquittal in this context, whether it might other places or not. Second thing we can say about this righteousness um, that he has in Christ, according to verse 9, is that it's not... Paul's new spirit-empowered obedience. Like once I had a righteousness in the law blameless, I count that as garbage, and now I start living by another standard, and I do better because the Holy Spirit is helping me, and that's now my righteousness that I have in Christ. I don't think so. For three reasons. The first one is simply the phrase, being found in him. Being found in him, having this righteousness. It puts the emphasis on union with Christ as a place where he is. He finds he is found there with this righteousness. Seems most natural to think that Paul is emphasizing his position in Christ and the new righteousness that he has there would not be his imperfect Christian behavior put over against his blameless legal behavior. Verse 12 is going to point us in a very different direction from that. It says, not that I have already attained or am already perfect. I don't think Paul is saying, I had this blameless righteousness, I counted as garbage, and now in Christ, I have this imperfect, 
righteousness, which counts because it's enabled by the Holy Spirit, but does not sound like what found in him for that righteousness means. Second reason is that he doesn't say that this righteousness is not carnal or legalistic. He simply calls it my own and from law. Now that phrase from law, eknamu, occurs four times in Paul. Every time it is naturally and easily translated by law keeping. You stick that in, works perfect every time. It's a real natural use of the phrase with no necessary implications of self-reliance. Paul is simply saying one way to have a righteousness is to pursue it by law keeping. What I used to do. Having a behavior that measures up. That would be one's own righteousness. Irrespective of motive. That would be one's own righteousness because you're doing it. You're doing it. The Holy Spirit is enabling you and you're doing it. It's your own righteousness. And Paul is despairing of his own Christian righteousness. He's despairing of it. As a ground for God being 100% for him. God's irrevocable acceptance of sinners can't be grounded there. We need a ground absolutely sure from which we can begin to do the kind of Holy Spirit enabled imperfect obedience for which we will give an account and which will be the evidence of whether we go to heaven or to hell. Saying amen again to what Dr. Moo was stressing. Third reason. When I try to figure out Paul's way of thinking about his own behavior in this context, verse 12 seems absolutely crucial to me. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but, now how how is he thinking? He's getting inside his head. But I press on. This This is massive effort. This is massive engagement of will. This is self-denial. This is cutting off your hand. This is pummeling your body. Lest you be a castaway. I press on to make it my own. Because Christ has made me his own. Now, the link between that phrase, he seized me. And verse 9, I am found in him, or I think in Paul's mind, together. How do I get in him? How am I found in him? He takes me. He seizes me. And I find myself in him, believing. 
And now, you better believe I have warrant to press on with all manner of boldness. You turn that around and start to let the pressing on become a part of the foundation of the pressing on. And the pressing on dies. Maybe in 40 years. The most natural way, I think, to understand this righteousness in verse 9 that we have in Christ is that it is the obedience of chapter 2, verse 8. In fact, I won't go into this, but I just commend you for research. It's probably been done, and I'm, I'm a pastor, so I don't know about it. That the passive word for find, be found, in chapter 2, Christ was found in human form. In chapter 3, verse 9, I am found in Christ. He was found in human form obedient. We are found in Christ righteous. Is that, a, is that an accident? I doubt it. Quite apart from those, that, that verb connection, the heurisco passive connection between he's found in human form obedient, we are found in him righteous. If that's just an accident, that's okay, just set it aside. Feels significant to me. I commend it to you for reflection. The, the nearest, easiest, most natural way to understand. Once I was living in the law, trying my best to do what God required me to do, 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 and I have failed. I'm still failing. Verse 12, therefore I rejoice that in Him I have a righteousness, not my own. It isn't my own doing. Spirit-empowered doing or legalistic doing. It's not my doing. It's His doing. Chapter 2, verse Now, this is said five ways in Paul. I'll just tick them off because this is not a big lecture. It's a little lecture. It's said, chapter 3, verse 9, we have a righteousness in Him. Romans 5.19, His obedience, by it we are appointed righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, in Him we become the righteousness of God. Romans 4, 6, God imputes, Logizatai language, imputes, reckons righteousness to us apart from works of the law, which parallels then 5, Romans 3, 28, we are justified apart from works of the law. The parallel between 4, 6 and 3, 28, unmistakable, meaning all of Paul's dikaiao, justification talk, is imputation talk. So I conclude the first of these three, and the two are left are much shorter, these three diminishings, that when a person argues that it simply isn't there, what you just said for the last 15 minutes is dead wrong. It's not in the New Testament. That's leftover Lutheran, Calvinistic, Protestant, 
misunderstanding of categories, you are, I believe, profoundly diminishing Christ's glory in what he achieved for us. Which leads me to the the second diminishment. Namely, this pastoral concern about assurance. It seems to me that there are deficiencies and defects in the human soul that were meant to be remedied by the achievement of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us through faith alone. Christ didn't perform this for nothing. There were needs that correspond to it. And, of course, there are objective needs in God's own way of dealing with humankind that must be satisfied. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about subjective needs that human beings have that God means to touch through doctrine, through truth, to turn their lives upside down. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if you get part of the truth wrong, bondages remain. So what do I have in mind? It seems to me, as I've considered the subject of lack of assurance, I deal with this as much as anything probably in the people that I'm preaching to, and fears and doubts. Doubts not about objective, did he rise from the dead? Very, very few people are wrestling with that. But am I in? Am I saved? That's very common for people to wrestle with. If you say to me, what more assurance could a person get from the doctrine of imputation that he doesn't get from the doctrine of the total forgiveness of sins? Here's my response. Don't try to be wiser than God. The human soul is a mystery. Who can know it? Who are we to say there are no unique kinds of fear and doubt for reasons we don't fully understand that will vanish only when in the power of the Spirit the doctrine of the imputation of Christ is presented to that needy soul? That need, that unique fear, that unique terror and pain and psychological stuckness. Waiting, waiting, waiting for this dagger to sever it. And you say, it doesn't exist. Doubt is a frightening thing. If a person is bent on doubting, He can doubt anything. You can't stop him. No mere doctrine brings peace. If a person is bent on doubting, they can doubt anything. Assurance is a supernatural work of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But, it seems clear to me, that the fullness of the glory of the achievement of Christ corresponds to the particular wounds and sins and defects and deficiencies of the crying, desperately doubting, fearful, 
unassured human soul. And that to the degree that we get this wrong and diminish it, we hurt our people. And they languish for lack of the fullness of the glory of the achievement of Christ on their behalf. I, I, so my, my explanation for why a person, when you share with them the stunning reality that Christ accomplished for you all things such that if you believe in Him, there is a union with Him so that the Father looks upon you as though you had totally fulfilled every one of His requirements. I cannot explain to you why that will lift a person's fears and doubts and send them to Afghanistan when the message of forgiveness didn't. I can't explain that. Why should I even want to? I just want it to happen. I want that kind of power and that kind of liberty, that kind of radical lay-down-your-life love, which brings me finally to number three. And this, this could be, I, I suppose, in view of what Doug Moose said, his take on the lay of the land, I, I'm not sure I would see things exactly the same way. I mean, I see the doctrine exactly the same way, but as far as what's needed today, hmm, I was kind of wondering... Hmm. Too much emphasis on the alien righteousness of Christ. Now, where's that? In the emergent church? Mainline denominations? Generic vanilla milk toast 30 million evangelicals? Where, where is this happening? Um, where, where, are they, where are so many people getting this right? So he may know something I don't know. I think he's speaking historically and, and noting that the church is awash in carnality. I don't lay that at the foot of an excessive emphasis on the doctrine of justification. Where is that happening? Well, maybe one or two teeny-weeny reformed denominations. <laughs> well, fine. There are millions and millions of people who can't begin to articulate this doctrine, which has proved to be over and over again massively life-changing. Massively liberating, massively political. Read Wilberforce's one book. And all that book says is, get the doctrine of justification right if you want to end slavery. That's the point of the book. So I don't think we've gotten it right. And that in our churches, our people just awash with excessively wonderful teaching on justification. I don't think so. I pray that you will not belittle it as though something else is needed here besides Pauline type. I press on and lay my life down for lost people because... He has made me His own and I'm found in Him perfectly righteous. Let Him at me. Nobody can hurt me. I'm getting carried away. I'm going to finish by reading... Oh, you don't have it in your hands. Uh, I'm going to read... To close, I'm going to read a paragraph, two paragraphs from the book that you can have in a minute if you want it. Um, To try to get at this third and climactic Diminishing. If Christ's glory is being diminished in his 
achievements being denied, and if souls are languishing because of the unique deficiencies that are waiting for that particular achievement to, in a mysterious way, address and deliver them from, if those two things are happening, you can almost be assured that in due time the root of love will be severed. And the, and the, and the people that are making this denial are mainly doing it in the name of better love. It won't work. So here is the last paragraphs of the conclusion of, of this, uh, this book. My ultimate reason for writing this book is to avert a double tragedy that will come where the obedience of Christ imputed to us through faith alone, is denied or obscured. Inevitably, in the wake of that denial, our own works, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, begin to take on a function that contradicts the very reason these good works exist. They exist to display the beauty and worth of Christ whose sacrifice and obedience counted as ours through faith in Christ, are the only and all-sufficient security of the fact that God is completely for us. That's the first tragedy. In our desire to elevate the importance of the beautiful works of love, we begin to nullify the very beauty of Christ and His work that they were designed to display. And then lastly, the other tragedy that I pray we can avert is the undermining of the very thing that makes the works of love possible. What makes radical, risk-taking, sacrificial, Christ-exalting works of love possible is the fact that Christ's perfect obedience counted as our righteousness and Christ's perfect sacrifice counted as our punishment secured completely the glorious reality that God is for us as an omnipotent Father who works all things together for our everlasting joy, if we begin to deny or minimize the importance of the obedience of Christ imputed to us through faith alone, our own works will begin to assume the role that should have been Christ's. And that happens over time, perhaps generations, when that happens, the works of love themselves will be severed from their root in the Christ-secured assurance that God is totally for us. In this way, for the sake of exalting the importance of love, we will undermine the very thing that makes it possible. Therefore, I say to you as a Exhortation, I plead with you for the sake of the undiminished glory of Christ and for the sake of radical, sacrificial, risk-taking justice and love. Maintain your allegiance or get it to a robust, biblical, historic vision of Christ whose obedience is counted 
as ours through faith alone in Him. Father, I pray that you would apply these words to us and insofar as they are true and biblical, give them force. And if I have misstated anything, make that known and cancel it out. Don't leave us to ourselves. Guard us, I pray, from severing love from its root in the imputation of the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, because of Christ alone, for your glory alone. Amen.